What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Biblical Masculinity Podcast. My name is Moses Birdie, and I'm the host and founder of this movement, where we are dedicated to reforging and restoring biblical masculinity in the hearts and minds of Christian men by discerning what scripture and Christian literature says about how we should act as men and what it means to be a man. But before we get into anything, guys, I have a question for you. Do you guys ever just get so overwhelmed with life that you experience like sensory overload? Too many things happening at once and you know that you need to keep track of them all, but you can't possibly keep track of them and you know you can't keep track of them so you just get anxious and overwhelmed and you just have to stop? Like everything? Yeah, me too. It's not much fun, especially when it happens all the time, every day. Oftentimes it's the circumstances of our jobs or maybe you've got a baby in the house. My fiance is... It's actually a couple states away helping take care of her nephews, who apparently are quite the handful. I've been hearing horror stories over the last week involving tears and feces, and that's enough to make both myself and the most masculine of men cringe and uh, shiver. But regardless of what your situation is, I've got a cure, I think. Seriously, it's something that I've done to help drive back the anxiety, depression even, and it's been used for thousands of years to treat anything from the, uh, the Sunday scaries to hematohydrosis. If you don't believe me, don't take my word for it. Let's dive into scripture. It's called solitude. Solitude has been the go-to for dealing with your troubles for millennia. Superman used it. He named his fortress after it. Fortress of Solitude. Prophets have used it. Teddy Roosevelt and, and past presidents and military leaders have used it often. Jesus used it all the time. And I've used it. I've used it as a tool to help me, and and some of the most enlightening experiences in my life have come from it, stemmed directly from it. Coupled with being outside, there's something restorative about solitude that you just can't find in anything else. Being in solitude not only helps to treat anxiety, but it also sharpens and it hones the mind. And many of the world's greatest leaders have resolved to removing themselves from the distractions of life and the troubles of the world, you know, in order to realign with their values and their visions, especially before making world-altering decisions, pushing red buttons. Solitude might seem like something that's, that's so out of reach in the modern era, you know, and in the information age where we're so attached to our phones and we've got Apple watches where we're constantly getting pings um, and information and we're constantly connected to everybody all over the place on the other side of the world in, in our work and we're constantly around other people continually. But it's actually very possible to achieve and to experience the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. And it can greatly benefit your relationship with God as well. But before we get into this, I would just like to say that I am so incredibly stoked to have all of you here listening. And I've got some awesome news. We are now officially on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Those are three of the biggest streaming services in the world, and we're on all of them. And that seems like a small achievement to some, but it's a huge deal for us because it means that we get to cover all of the bases. You know, most people actually in the U.S., probably have an iPhone at this point. So iTunes and Apple Podcasts being the last platform that we've been accepted on is a huge deal. We're super excited. Also, 
If you haven't already, connect with us on social media, guys. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, the three big ones. Um, Hopefully, we'll be on YouTube soon. But connect with me there, and don't forget to smash that subscribe button for this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. All right, let's get back to the main program. So what is solitude? Now, solitude, for the most part, is a collection of, of internal and external circumstances that are the result of intentional withdrawal from man-made stimulus and social engagement. These circumstances include, but um, aren't necessarily limited to, physical isolation, uh, stillness, silence, social disengagement. Now, the more of these you put together, the better. Although I would I would argue that they can actually be mutually exclusive and and still by themselves contribute a great value and benefit to your life. In fact, I'd like to highlight a few contexts in the Bible specifically. Um, but also from like a historical and scriptural perspective, where solitude was necessary to fulfilling the callings of God, kings and prophets. Here are just a few benefits, just a few, you know, of seeking solitude in one's life solely from the context of scripture. Solitude, especially in the context of prayer, recharges you. And the most biblical example I can give of solitude was actually in Jesus's prayer life. Throughout his ministry, Jesus would perform miracles. He'd teach, he'd exhort crowds, throngs of people, massive, massive crowds, sometimes for like 10 to 15 hours a day. And then after he'd be bombarded by questions from his his ever-present and never-understanding disciples. Is it any bit surprising at all that Jesus' natural response to this was to send the crowds home, send his disciples away, usually on a boat or, or to the next town, just away, and then he'd find a nice quiet place up on a mountain somewhere and commune with his father. This is what he needed to recharge his batteries. His entire ministry, for at least three years, was of him pouring himself out to the world. The water of life quenching a thirsty crowd. And solitude. Humility and communion with the father. This was his way of being refilled so that he could continuously do the work of God. The best example I can give of this is Mark 6, verse 45, the multiplication of the loaves. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Here Jesus performs one of his most incredible miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, although we understand it, to actually probably be more than that because the count was for 5,000 men and there were more likely than not women and children present as well. So it's really somewhere probably between eight and 12,000 people. That's a ton of people. It's also a ton of bread and fish. He was also healing people, you know, but the most important part was that after the miracles, he sent his disciples away. There was forced social disengagement. And then he sought solitude. He went up into the mountain to pray as a crowd of 5,000 plus people. Although they did follow him around all the time. They weren't about to hike up a mountain in the pursuit of Jesus. They were just there his, for his teaching and his healing. You know, but he sought, like actively sought solitude. It was how he recharged. Jesus also sought solitude before making impactful and intense decisions. In Luke 6 verse 12 we see Jesus choosing to seek solitude before 
choosing his disciples. Verse 12 says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night long he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Notice it says that he went to the mountain. And then when morning came, he called his disciples. This assumes that they weren't with him, and therefore he was alone. Silence and solitude. In this particular example, Jesus resorts to it before deciding which 12 people he would create his Bible through, spread his gospel to all nations through, who would establish the early church, who would compile and create doctrine through the Holy Spirit. It was probably one of the biggest decisions he ever made in this ministry, and it was one of the most influential. Another noteworthy example is in the Garden of Gethsemane, just prior to Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and his crucifixion. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 says, Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me just one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for a second time, he went away and prayed. He did this again a third time as well. But in this particular context, he knew that he was about to be betrayed. Jesus knew he was about to be killed, given up to the Romans. And he was anxious to the point that his sweat became like blood. This isn't metaphorical speech. You know, this isn't flowery, poetic speech here. This is an actual medical condition, guys. It's called hematohydrosis or hemihydrosis. Essentially, the premise behind this is that you're under so much stress and so much anxiety that the capillaries under your skin rupture due to abnormal contractions and expansions. And what would normally be salty sweat oozing from your pores becomes watery blood as your blood from the capillaries mixes with your sweat. In this instance, Jesus chose to have his apostles with him in solitude, and he called them to be in prayer with him. He maintained the silence and the social disengagement, but due to the circumstances of anxiety and depression that causes you to sweat blood, he wanted them near him praying for him, praying with him. Guys, solitude doesn't always need to be solo. You can experience solitude with others present, but their goal should be peace, humility, and communion with the Father. And Jesus did this as he prepared himself to make the ultimate decision to willingly sacrifice himself for the sins of all mankind forever past and forevermore. There's historical context behind seeking solitude when seeking direction as well. Jesus wasn't the only biblical character to seek solitude. Moses ran away from Egypt after killing an Egyptian that was harming a fellow Israelite. 
the case can probably be made, certainly, I guess, be made, that he fled out of necessity and fear for his life, but regardless of why he fled, the result of his flight and his long-term solitude is what's important here. In fleeing into the wilderness, he became somewhat of a shepherd in the land of Midian. There he discovered himself, who his true people were, the Israelites, and where his allegiances lie, ultimately with God. And it was out of that wilderness that God called to him through a burning bush, which led to his fulfillment of God's purpose for him, the redemption of his people, after 400 years of captivity under the Egyptians, and God's ultimately, God's glorification through his law, his decrees, and his commandments. Elijah acted similarly. In 1 Kings chapter 19, he flees from Jezebel after she threatens to kill him like he killed her prophets. Spoiler alert, Elijah was an absolute savage, a boss. Not only would he wreck prophets of false gods, namely Baal, but he'd taunt them too. Yet he had moments where his faith faltered. After being threatened by Jezebel, he fled a day's distance out into the wilderness and prayed to God to take his life rather than to let Jezebel kill him. Even though literally days before, God rained fire on his enemies when Elijah asked for it on top of a mountain. But rather than kill him, God sent him an angel, twice, to tell him to stop whimpering and to eat and drink because he's being called into the wilderness, to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God where Moses received the Ten Commandments. That was a 40-day trek through the wilderness, which if you look at a map, the place called Mount Horeb, which is currently... Um, believed to be guarded by Islamic military forces, it's in an absolutely arid, desolate part of the desert. It's mountainous, it's devoid of water, there's nothing there. That's the solitude that God was calling him into. First uh, Kings 19.9 There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replies, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake, and after the earthquake, fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? From there, Elijah repeated his previous statement. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets, and I'm the only one left, and they want to kill me too. And so God gave him direction, told him to go back and anoint two kings, and anoint his replacement, Elijah, Elisha, however you want to pronounce it. And then he began the destruction of the worship of the god Baal in Israel. But in that solitude... After drawing him 40 days and 40 nights out into the wilderness to Mount Horeb, God gave him strength in the cave on the mountain in the midst of his hopelessness, his depression, and his suicidal thoughts. God rescued him, strengthened him, and pointed him in the right direction. God gives us direction when we seek solitude.
God also uses solitude to prepare us to do his will. One of the aspects of solitude that I think is beautiful is that sometimes God uses solitude to shape our behavior, to prepare us for our calling. Now, I'm not saying that you need to sell all your stuff to buy a cabin in the middle of the woods somewhere so that God can finally tell you what your purpose is in life. But what I am saying is that there are biblical contexts where men are strengthened and trained in the wilderness so that God could fulfill in them what he needed to. John the Baptist was one of them. He was a great example. He was called by God and considered by Jesus to be the greatest prophet of all time. He out-profited Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Job. I don't even know if Job's considered a prophet, but he out-profited all the prophets. He also lived the most monastic, secluded, and minimalist lifestyle possible. He wore garments of like goat and camel hair. He subsisted and ate locusts and wild honey, bugs and sugary bug byproduct. But God used this minimalistic lifestyle to hone the priorities of John to fulfill his calling. He didn't care about the earthly things. In fact, he knew from before he was born that his cousin was the son of God and the savior of mankind. That's insane. Enjoy that pro-life argument. Other than that, literally nothing is known about the life of John the Baptist, other than the fact that he lived in the desert, wore animal skin, ate bugs, paved the way for the Messiah, and he baptized people. He had a very simple life. But God used an entire life of solitude, long-term solitude, to prepare him to be the greatest prophet to ever live. And then he got beheaded. Jesus also went into solitude prior to his ministry. There he was tempted by the most powerful evil force in existence. He fasted for like 40 days and 40 nights. And when questioned and tempted by the evil one, he succeeded and was ministered by angels. And emerged victorious from the wilderness. Matthew 4 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory, and he said to him, All of this I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. God used the desert here to prepare him as the perfect, sinless lamb who could sympathize with any and all temptation, including the temptation that only the Son of God could bear. To take the full measure of his Father's wrath For us, which is a terrible, painful demise. 
And I believe that's actually what happened when Satan took him to the top of a very high mountain during that last, that third temptation. He said to him, I'll give you everything here, everything you can see if you just fall down and worship me. You don't have to die. You don't have to go through that. We can bypass all of that. That was the most difficult decision Jesus could make. And he did it. And in that temptation, he was confirmed as the perfect, sinless lamb to be slain for the sins of all mankind, eternally past and forevermore. Another individual who was prepared in solitude for God's purposes was David. Now, David's solitude was different than Jesus's or the prophet's, for the most part, although probably similar to Moses's, actually. You see, David was the youngest of the eight sons of Jesse. During the reign of Saul, God decided to depose Saul and anoint a new king because Saul was disobedient and wicked. So God sent the prophet Samuel to the sons of Jesse to anoint the new king. And there, according to the direction of God, he anointed David, who was just a shepherd boy. 1 Samuel 16 says, and this is a long passage, so bear with me, guys, but it's important. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'll send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How could I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I'll show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And so he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Are all of your sons here? And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And so he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, you'd think that when a prophet of the Lord comes to you, pours oil on your head, and says, God has forsaken the current king of Israel and is anointing you as king to a kid, the response would be, Yo, for real? All right, let me get my stuff and let's hit the palace. But that wasn't the case. Like, at all. David was sent back out into the fields into solitude with his sheep to continue his job of shepherd, to dodge sheep poop in the tall grass, to fight off wild beasts, and to probably talk to himself and his small-brained sheep companions. Imagine how disappointing that would have been. 
But sometimes, God wants to use our current circumstances to prepare us for our calling. David was sent back out into a career of solitude, where he learned how to use ranged weapons to defend sheep. And then, out of the blue, God called him to purpose. And he routed the army of the Philistines with the same sling he used to scare away wolves and to kill lions and bears. The same tools that he practiced within solitude, but used in greater context. It was almost a political move on God's part, when you think about it. God was playing 5D chess in a checkers world, preparing David for a moment that would allow him to be loved by everyone, military and non-military, by leaving him in a lowly position so that he could be prepared to fight Goliath. What an incredible premise. God uses solitude to prepare us. When it comes to solitude, it's not always you being alone in the woods or on top of a mountain, but rather the most important aspect of solitude as a Christian is that our intentions are to pursue humility and communion with God. And it's in those moments, I would argue, that God strengthens us, he humbles us, redirects us, and sharpens us for our purpose as men who do his will. So what does solitude look like in a day-to-day life? Let's recap the definition. Solitude is intentionally seeking some form of withdrawal from man-made stimulus and social engagement. This could be literal quiet. This could be physically distancing yourself from your communities. It could be withdrawing to your bedroom. I would even say that an acceptable form of solitude is sitting in a coffee shop, phone turned off with some like noise-canceling headphones on, just, just to be present with Jesus. Any of these things is acceptable as a form of solitude. But let God lead you in whatever form of solitude he's drawing you toward. It might be a literal drive out into the mountains to spend the night alone on a mountaintop. I've done it after a particularly crappy day at work. Or week at work, really. A particularly crappy week. Honestly, it was magical. I could see the Milky Way. It calmed my anxiety. It allowed me to think with clarity about my direction in life, and it removed all of the distractions of my daily life so that I could focus on trusting God, specifically trusting God here. Actually, I'll share the context of it with you guys. So I, it, was, it was pretty nuts. I was running out of daylight, rapidly trying to hike Mount LeConte in the Smoky Mountains. I got there around 5 p.m., and I was booking it. And my legs were in so much pain. I was exhausted. And I literally had to stop every hundred steps and spend about 30 seconds to a minute praying that God would get me safely another hundred steps. Eventually, I ran out of daylight. And within a couple of minutes, I was actually passed by an old man who had a flashlight because my idiot self didn't bring extra batteries and my cheap lantern went out. So I literally followed a strange old man and his bobbing flashlight through the dark up the side of a mountain pausing every hundred steps to pray that God would give me just a little bit more strength in my legs to get to the top and take away the pain. Eventually, I got to the top, and I ended up sleeping on the ground in the grass in my sleeping bag next to the old guy that I followed. We talked for a little bit, but for the most part, it was silent, and we, we shared a, a flask of whiskey. It was cheap whiskey. But I woke up in the morning, before sunrise, just as he was leaving. I didn't get much sleep. And he didn't stay for sunrise, which was kind of odd. That's really the only reason you hike Lacan at night, you know, to see the sunrise the next morning. And it's an incredible sunrise, but I never saw the man again. It was a bizarre experience, but it was a beautiful experience as well. 
You know, I made some pivotal decisions in my life after a night of staring at the stars, not being able to sleep because it was too cold. You know, after that encounter, it, it, it remains one of the greatest experiences in my life. I can't urge you enough, brothers, to capitalize on your opportunities for daily quiet and solitude. Distance yourself from daily distractions. You know, pull away from the world. Use it as a time to commune with the Lord and let Him restore your soul. Make solitude a priority in your life. Annually, quarterly, monthly, weekly, daily, whatever. But give God the opportunity to use this incredible thing, solitude, to direct your steps, to restore and recharge you, and to prepare you. Guys, I promise you won't be disappointed. Guys, I hope you got something helpful, something beneficial or inspirational out of this message. Solitude is such a beautiful thing, and it's been an influential part of my life. If you did get anything at all out of this episode, guys, smash that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to stream this podcast, and consider leaving us a review, again, on whatever platform you're listening from. A five-star review goes an incredibly long way to helping the streaming algorithms know that the message we're sharing is worth hearing, and they'll send it out to the men who need to hear it. But we need your help to do that. Subscribe, leave a review, share the message, toss it up on your IG stories if you want to. Be the reason another man hears the message and it changes his life. I would also encourage you all to connect with us on social media. You know, we're on a ton of different platforms currently, including Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and hopefully soon YouTube. We're straggling a bit on that one because I, I need to get the studio built out. We're not currently operating out of a studio, but, you know, I want to make sure that any video content that we bring you guys is as high of quality as humanly possible. So we're waiting on the build out for that one before we start posting and putting content up on YouTube, but we will be there. Actually, right now, we're most active on our Instagram, and we post multiple times a day on there. And I think you guys will actually get a lot of value out of following along with us there. I would also like to add that we've currently put together a Facebook group where we can sharpen each other. It has rightly been dubbed The Forge, so that we can forge masculinity in each other. It's a closed group, but as long as you're a man and a Christian, you'll be accepted in. Sorry, ladies. But unfortunately, platforms like Instagram are not very good for engaging among you guys um, or allowing you guys to engage with one another, I guess you should say. Um, you know, platforms like Instagram are great for allowing you to engage directly with me via DM, but for engaging amongst each other, something like a Facebook group is much, much better and easier to use. Okay, so once you join, there's a post pinned at the top that I'd like you all to read and then go ahead and post on the group feed. I get DMs all the time, and don't get me wrong, they're fantastic, and I love engaging with you all, but my limited life experiences unfortunately does not allow me to sympathize with all of you, and I guarantee that there are other men here who've been through what you're going through, and they can give great, maybe better advice than me. Okay, so guys, join up, let's sharpen one another, let's forge masculinity in one another over on our Facebook group called The Forge. All right, thank you guys for joining us here, thank you for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Subscribe, leave us a review, and I look forward to speaking with you guys again soon. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Biblical Masculinity Podcast. Are you ready to assume the mantle of the biblical man? Join us now at biblicalmasculinity.org and become the man that you were always meant to be.